This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. You may not know, but April along with being the cruelest month, is Alcohol Awareness Month. And it happens to be a subject I've been wanting to tackle for a while now. Because during the pandemic, I noticed some pretty frightening headlines about alcohol use, particularly among women. Americans are drinking far more than they did in previous years. Alcohol abuse is surging among women. During the pandemic, women increased their heavy drinking days by 41%. More mothers are drinking and it could lead to alcoholism. One substance abuse doctor calls it an epidemic in a pandemic. Before the pandemic, yeah, we were seeing this rise in, in alcohol use. That's Dr. Dawn Sugarman, a clinical psychologist and researcher at McLean Hospital in Massachusetts and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. There used to be this gender gap in rates. And so, you know, in the early 80s, the epidemiological studies were showing about a five to one ratio between men and women. That had sort of shrunk in the 90s to about two to one. And now it's it's getting close to one to one. With the pandemic, we, you know, it's still sort of early on in the research, but one study had found overall, there was an increase by 14% in drinking and that women had a higher increase at 17%, but that their binge drinking, um, which we would say would be about having four or more drinks in a short couple of hour period of time, had for women had increased 41%. So that's quite a jump. So is there something about women that make them more susceptible to alcohol abuse? Apparently the answer is yes. Women absorb and metabolize alcohol differently than men. For instance, women have less total body water, so when they drink, the alcohol is less diluted in their body, so it's more concentrated. Uh, They also have less of an enzyme that breaks down alcohols, so they don't metabolize it as much. So 
For a woman of the same weight as, as a man who's drinking the same amount, they're going to have more alcohol in their system, more concentrated alcohol in their system, and it's going to stay in there longer. So that makes them more vulnerable to having the physical negative consequences of uh, alcohol. So on today's episode, women and alcohol abuse, we'll talk to two women who hit rock bottom and not only found their way out, but made recovery spaces for people just like them. We'll also hear from an interventionist on how to help someone you love. But we begin with my co-host for this episode, Elizabeth Vargas, award-winning broadcast journalist, podcaster, and author of Between Breaths, a memoir of panic and addiction. I'm here with my friend, Elizabeth Vargas, who has experienced what it's like to be a woman who has a drinking problem and who has come out the other side. Elizabeth and I have known each other, gosh, I don't want to say how long, but (laughs) let's just say for decades. Um, Perhaps (laughs) our most famous television appearances when we were trying to figure out what the internet was in 1994. What is internet anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer network. Mm -hmm. The one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big? How does one, what do you write to it? Like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? It's sort of embarrassing after all the work we've done that that yeah, is sort of one, one of the, the one of the most um, it shared pops up, moments. like every couple of years and yeah, it exactly. catches fire. And, you know. <laughs> but Elizabeth has not only written about women and alcohol, she's lived it, as I said, she's done several hour specials on it. And um, I'm so grateful, actually, Elizabeth, that you've taken time out of your schedule to really educate me and all our listeners about this issue, which has become really a huge problem. And why don't we talk just briefly before we talk to some other experts, because Mm -hmm. I feel like you are an expert yourself. You describe yourself, Elizabeth, as a high-functioning alcoholic, and you were able to hide this for years, weren't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had... George Stephanopoulos, you know, um, interviewed me on Good Morning America about this. And he said, I have sat next to you for hundreds of hours of live television at that point because we co-hosted Good Morning America together. And even during 9-11, many of the specials together, he said, I've never once ever, ever seen any sign of this issue in your life. And close girlfriends of mine were like, what? No, not you. The only I really did keep it very, very hidden. Um similar to the way I kept my anxiety hidden, which was what I was self-medicating. Um, and it sadly also kept me in denial because I thought, oh, I can't be an alcoholic. I can't be addicted to this substance. This can't be a problem for me because I don't look like that. I haven't, you know, I'm not homeless. I'm not jobless. I'm not, you know, I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a network news anchor. I'm all these things. Therefore, I cannot be an alcoholic. And and I managed to quit, you know, when I got pregnant. Uh, although the first time I got pregnant, it was so hard to quit. That should have been a massive warning sign for me. How did you finally come to terms with it? And how did you finally stop? You know, um, 
I didn't stop after my very worst experiences. You know, I write about this in my book that I had a very scary experience that sent me to the emergency room. And it was the really the only really true blackout I've ever had. I wasn't one of those people who blacked out all the time. Um, and uh, but that what that didn't scare me sober. It, I did go to rehab. I went to rehab, two different rehabs. One of them was really, really great. One was not so great. But it wasn't rehab that finally got me to stay to get sober. It was me quietly finally deciding I, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't lie anymore. I can't hide this anymore. I don't want to. That's the key. I don't want to. Um, I spend a lot of time, you know, looking for, as I called it, door number three. You know, there's got to be another option here. Um, but I couldn't, there wasn't another option. And it, it, I had to finally sort of come to that decision all by myself. And I'm so grateful I did. Well, I'm not only proud, so proud of what you've been able to accomplish personally, but your courage in talking about this publicly I think has helped so many people because it was so shrouded in shame and secrecy. It still is, Katie. It still is. And stigma, we know. I'm on the board of directors for the Partnership to End Addiction. We do a lot of science-based research for the government on this. And we know that stigma is the singular, most important reason people do not seek help. They're afraid to. They're afraid to admit they might have a problem. They're afraid to admit they need help. They're afraid of the consequences they will suffer in their personal and professional lives by making that admission. And only I, I firmly believe, I mean, listen, I was outed when I was in rehab. It was a deeply painful experience for me. It was excruciating. But and I don't know that I would have written my book if I hadn't been outed. But my story was already out there. I thought, well, I might as well tell my own story since everybody else thinks they know the whole story. Um but I deeply believe that more people talking openly is the best way we can chip away at the stigma and the shame, because that then we realize that. And I and I have never felt lonelier in my entire life than when I was struggling with with alcohol, because I didn't. I was too afraid to tell anybody what was going on, and that's why I wrote my book so that you know people can see some one other person's story and there are a lot of great books out there now really good books especially by women um talking about their struggles with alcohol and why they drank and those books helped me they helped me a lot realize that I'm not alone when we come back two successful women who almost lost everything There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. When Katie Oluwatoyan started her sober journey, she didn't see herself in any of the recovery spaces she sought out. From the familiar 12-step route to rehab and outpatient programs to online communities. I always wondered why I was the only Black person in those spaces. When I know, it was just common sense that Black people, people of color, go through a lot of trauma. And and it just makes sense that they too would have problems with alcohol. Through her own recovery, Katie started something to fill the void for Black women like her. The Sober Black Girls Club started as a blog, a space for Katie to share her story. In 2019, the blog grew into an online collective, a small support group of Black women who identified with Katie's experience. The pandemic expanded the community even more with weekly Zoom meetings and eventually in-person regional meetups. Today, the Sober Black Girls Club has more than 1,200 members. Tell us about your relationship with alcohol and how it developed. When did you start drinking? It was later in life, right? Correct. I started drinking um, when I when I started college. Honestly, I can actually remember like the first day. Literally, my dad and my brother dropped me off, unloaded all my clothes and and dorm items, and as soon as they left, I got like a knock on the door. And it was a frat, a frat dude, some frat guy, some frat boy. And literally, like I remember, we went, we party that night, and we drank. And my first time drinking, and it was just amazing. The relief, the um, just the looseness, like just be feeling very loose and feeling very free. It was just a crazy experience, and it was something that I have never ever experienced before. Um, it was my first time drinking alcohol, and during that time, it was it was pretty good. I thought it was interesting, and Elizabeth, I know you read this too, that Katie's background, her Nigerian uh, background, culturally, uh, your family, you guys didn't drink a lot. Well, most families don't drink a lot when, they're ki- when their kids <laughs> well, are younger. Do. Some but, do. Yeah, you know. I guess. But you didn't really, um, you know, it wasn't part of, the, of your culture. No, honestly, like not at all. Um, for a while, I went to a private school, like an Irish Catholic private school um, in New York City. So it was pretty strict, you know, uniforms, always being disciplined and on time. It was like a different era. It was pretty strict. And then even when I started attending public school, um, again, just 
having the parents that I had, um, literally school Monday through Friday, then after going to Quran classes, Saturday, I was in a Saturday science and math program. Sunday was Sunday school. It was just nonstop um, work and order and, and just activity. So there was honestly no, not even any room, let alone my family definitely didn't drink or, or keep alcohol in the, um, in the home at all. You started drinking just really to party, right, in college, which is not that unusual. And when did it go from drinking, social drinking, to drinking on a regular basis, sort of at all hours of the day and not not in a social setting? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I had graduated law school, just finished graduating law school. And this is not funny. I can laugh about it now because I'm in a a better place. But back then, none of this was hilarious or funny in any type of way. But I had just graduated law school. Um, You know, I had my firm. I just signed a lease in New York City. I had broken up with my boyfriend. You know, I just was so ready to start this new chapter in life. <laughs> um, however, there was this thing I had to do. I had to pass the bar. I had to take it and I had to pass the bar. And I remember feeling a lot of pressure because there was this, there was this thing, I don't want to call it a stigma, but there was this thing that like black students don't pass the bar on the first try. Now, looking back, when you compare the ratio, the amount of black students that were in my law school, compare them to the white student, the white students, excuse me, ratio wise, we all pass and fail at the same time. However, when it's just like five of us in the class, it kind of looks, and we all fail, it kind of looks really, really bad. So I had a lot of pressure for one, just being known to be known to being really smart and intelligent. I had a lot of pressure on that side. Then I had pressure and I have a job. And even though my job wasn't contingent on passing the bar, I still didn't want to be working and had not passed the bar. And then the pressure of being <laughs> I didn't want to be one of the black students to fail. I just did it. So I started to take medication and um, I'm going to say a lot of caffeine, basically caffeine pills, not even medication. So like working out pills, caffeine pills, drinking a lot of coffee. And I was studying literally from like 9 a.m. to like 10 p.m. However, when you're drinking so much coffee in the morning, I wasn't able to fall asleep. So I was using wine, I remember distinctly, wine and moonshine, you know, because I was broke, clearly, studying for the bar. I was using wine and moonshine to fall asleep. I was just guzzling bottles and bottles, and that's when it started, literally in the summer of 2017, as I was studying for the bar. Morning time, caffeine pills and coffee, and then nighttime, moonshine and wine. You had no idea, Katie, that you had a drinking problem, really, which seems hard to for people to wrap their heads around until you went to a therapist. And she basically said, we have to address this. And I'm curious, were you just in denial? And I think, Elizabeth, you can probably speak to this. No, I had the same thing. You know, I was like, what do you mean? I'm <laughs> what do you mean? I have a drinking problem. You, you, it, it never occurred to me either that I had a drinking problem. And Katie, I'll be honest, my doctor didn't think that you know, he was like, just cut back, you know, just you know, what you know, it's no big deal. And I would I would come in. Um, I don't know if you had the same experience, but I would come in like, you know, dehydrated and with clearly what the physical effects were of having had too much alcohol. And um, and nobody said for the longest time 
that you have a drinking problem. It's very difficult. And especially if culturally, as you were just saying, you grew up in, a, in an environment where nobody else was drinking. It might be, it's difficult to actually understand and, and recognize that in yourself. Honestly, in 2017, if you would have, have even with a law degree, <laughs> with so much education, if you would have said, Katie, what does an addiction mean? I'd be like, what does it mean to have an addiction? What does an addiction look like? I would have said someone houseless on 42nd Street. I had no idea that it was even scientifically possible for me to have an addiction, especially to alcohol and drugs. Um, I literally thought that, you know, you know, the show Shameless, I thought that addiction was like white people's problems. And honestly, that's just what I thought. Mm. It was just, I, I thought you had to be houseless. I thought you had to have a big belly. I thought I thought so many like physical characteristics of what I thought like a a, a person suffering from an addiction um, would look like, and I said that's not me. But then when I spent the year just living my life, still working, I realized as I went through jobs, as I went through apartments, as I went through friends and um, partners, that I I actually might have a problem, and I had to accept that alcohol. Um, was was pretty much a, p- a part of that problem. Did anybody in your life tell you that otherwise, like any of your friends or somebody who was who was seeing what you were doing to yourself? You know, it's, you know, that's actually a really good question. You know, I actually, um, I think that for a long time, everyone just really knew me as a very, uh, you know, a stra- strong black woman. Excuse me. You know, the girl who's who was, you know, I say what I want when I want mm-hmm. to. Um, I'm smart. I can back it up. With, with facts, like I can, I can support myself. I can support a community. So this is just my attitude because in, in all reality, my drinking problem really developed into an aggressive like personality that I thought at the time was just me. But it wasn't until I got sober that I realized like, oh, this really isn't all me. That had a lot to do with the alcohol that I was consuming. You know, a lot of my story, I can look at uh, backwards. Emily Paulson is a sober working mom of five, but her drinking began long before she became a mom. I used it to cope from a very young age, but my behavior always mimicked the people around me. You know, when you're drinking in high school, it's, you know, it's against the rules and you're already doing something you shouldn't be doing, but it wasn't out of the ordinary. And, you know, got to college and did some binge drinking, but again, kind of normalized in college. So it was always hidden, um, even when it was problematic. And it really, you know, I drank in my young adult years and it was really when I became a mom that I, I really started using it to cope. And what was hard about it is, is that I didn't fit the mold. If I, if I Googled, you know, am I an alcoholic, which I did many times, <laughs> um, I, I couldn't check all the I couldn't answer all the questions. Like I couldn't check yes on all the questions. Like, you know, I didn't grow up with alcoholic parents. I, um, I could stop because I stopped, you know, five times for five pregnancies, nine months at a time. So I thought, no, it's, it's, it's not a problem. And it wasn't that something bad happened every time I drank, but anytime I did, you know, get in a really big fight with my husband or, send a text message I didn't want to send or feel ashamed about something, alcohol was always the common denominator. And I think being pregnant so many times back to back really kept it at bay. Um, and when really was when my last child was born, it was kind of like all bets were off. 
and my drinking really escalated. But again, I was looking around me and, you know, other moms drank and, you know, it was kind of a joke. It was this, uh, you know, that's what moms need to do. Wine o'clock. Yeah. I mean, you wine, I wine, right? All those jokes that really normalize something that I deep down really felt was a problem. And I, I just didn't want to admit it. I didn't want to look at it further. Um, and I would always say, but I haven't, you know, this hasn't happened yet. I haven't, I haven't gotten in trouble with the law. I haven't, you know, all of these things I thought should happen, these rock bottom things. And I really didn't have a place to go. Um, I think that's one thing along the way now, looking back that I wish there was a place for people who were questioning, who, who again, couldn't check all those boxes, who hadn't had all those rock bottom consequences, because eventually then when I did, well, then I fit, then I was knocking on the door of AA and I fit right in because I'd had the DUI and I'd been in the hospital and I had marriage problems and all of these things. Um, but I can look back and see that I, I had nowhere to go for a really long time. There's a saying that the people who take the alcohol quizzes are because they're taking the alcohol quiz, <laughs> they have an yeah. alcohol problem. You right, know? Like it's it like, should just be a pop-up. If yeah, you Google like, that, like, yes, go, yes, go yeah. help. If, right. if you don't have an alcohol problem, you're not online taking a quiz or oh. taking the quiz in the back of Cosmo magazine when they used to have that. Um, yeah. And all these movements that have popped up that are sober curious or just, you know, opening this discussion and dialogue about your relationship with alcohol. Um, I don't remember seeing any of these before I got sober, no. um, you know, which was, you know, several years ago now, but um, it seems like we've had a lot more of these movements pop up since then. Yeah. And I, I often wonder, you know, maybe I would have stopped sooner or managed it better sooner Right. If I had been able to be in a, a room with a bunch of other women who were talking about this. Right. Because I think there is a point where once you're using it to cope, I think there's a point where there's a point of no return, right? Like you can't unpickle a cucumber. If you're aware, it's like there's not enough informed consent out there to know, hey, this could happen. This is an addictive substance and you could get addicted to it. You don't have to check all these boxes. You don't have to hit some proverbial rock bottom. It's just, and, and it's not a moral thing around drinking or not drinking. It's just, hey, Maybe, maybe you should know these things <laughs> about this substance so that you can make informed choices. And it's funny, Elizabeth, I don't know if it's funny is the right word, but it's, it, it's, it reminds me because your book came out um, after I had been hospitalized um, mm -hmm. for, a, I had taken sleeping pills and champagne and I was in the hospital. And I was still at the point, I remember reading your book and having to put it away because I was still at the point where I was reading things just to um, prove to myself that I wasn't bad enough to quit. Hmm. And as I was reading your book, I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh, <laughs> this is resonating. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't ready to face it uh, until, again, it was you know January of 2017 when I finally got sober. And, and I, I think it was, I, I think it was something you said about, you know, loving your kids so much yeah. That I would die I, for them. I would do anything. I yeah. That I, I would, I would die for my kids, but I couldn't stop drinking for them. Yep. And I don't think anybody ever put that into words. And like, I'd had so much shame at that point. How could I keep doing this to my kids? And it was like, oh, like I, someone else gets it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the rooms of recovery, even today, 
it's the moms who are in the rooms who feel like they, they I know from my personal experience that my, the, the deepest reservoirs of shame for me surround the fact that I was a mother who drank. It, you know, not, not just that I was a woman who drank because there's that too. Like somehow it seems somehow okayer for a, a man to be drunk or tipsy, um, but not for a woman, but it's even less okay for a mother Right. Well, there's so much pressure and there's oh, so much God. in society about the bad mother, mm-hmm. right? And judging yourself against those standards. I was telling Elizabeth during my uh, short-lived talk show, I had someone on and I was, I think in retrospect, kind of judgmental about this trend to have wine boxes like the, you know, we give our kids juice boxes, but there were wine boxes or doing like while the kids were on play dates, the moms were drinking wine. And, and I remember saying, gosh, that, that sounds kind of dangerous. And is that really a good idea? And I got a lot of pushback um, from people in the audience, but also from people on my staff that I was kind of being holier than thou about these women and these hardworking moms who had the right to relax and be, you know, connect over a glass or two or three of wine. You know, it's funny because if you say, there's so many things that are demonized, right? Like from the time you give birth, it's like breastfeeding or formula feeding or, you know, rice cereal or not, like all of these things. And so I think just being a mom, it comes with this shame and this judgment. And I think we're just waiting to come back and just be like, hey, don't tell me I can't do that thing. Look how hard I work. Look how difficult this is. I deserve this thing. And it, when you really look at it and you look at the marketing around it and you look at the messages were being sent, why is that a necessary thing? Why do we need to drink at 10 a.m. at a play date? Which again, all these things are things that I did. I don't say this as a judgment. It's, it's in looking back that I realized, gosh, I remember going on a cleanse and demonizing sugar and gluten and dairy, but I never took out alcohol. Um, and why, why aren't we talking about this? I remember Googling sobriety groups. Again, Katie Oluwatoyan. And I remember the first one that popped up was a 12-step, um, 12-step traditional meeting. I went to my first meeting and it was really, really far from where I lived. And at that time, I was really down bad. Um, in other words, I was in a bad place. <laughs> I didn't have a car. I had to take public transportation everywhere I went, um, Ubers, buses, trains, subways, etc. And I remember I had to travel about an hour and a half to the nearest um, 12-step meeting um, at that time. And when I went, I was the only Black person there. Uh, and at first, that didn't really ring alarms because the truth is in a lot of spaces that I um, were in up to that point, I was pretty much one of the only few black person in in a lot of spaces that I was a part of um, in high school and college and and law school. So it didn't really um, bother me too much. But I remember when it was a speaker's meeting and I remember the speaker telling her story of how, you know, she got into addiction. And when she was talking about her time in addiction, she was, she had basically said, for lack of better words, that life was so horrible. I was living in this neighborhood. And the neighborhood that she said was my neighborhood. And the way she talked about my neighborhood was just in a, such an awful way. But the truth is, there's nothing wrong with my neighborhood. Just this fact that it's just 
not white. There's absolutely nothing wrong with my neighborhood. I live in one of the safest boroughs that you can live in New York City. Yes, it's like somewhat segregated where we have one, you know, the North Shore, which is pretty much multicultural, Black, Asians, um, Spanish folks. And then you have the South Shore, which is more white folks. And that's where the meeting was at. But there was nothing wrong with my with my neighborhood. Um, so after that, I was like, absolutely not. And I just didn't um, attend that meeting anymore. And I started to, I joined Instagram, I remember. And I started to, you know, be involved with the Instagram community. However, that community was also white. And it wasn't a problem that they were, that it was a white community. My problem with the Instagram recovery community at that time was that it was painting a one-sided picture of addiction and recovery. At that time, sobriety was this thing where, you know, you do yoga and you drink coffee and you're doing this and everything was just so bright and pink and cherry. And at that time, I was it was such a dark place. I was just in such a dark place, excuse me. I was in a bad place. And I just couldn't understand, like, what was going on. And that's what, you know, encouraged me to create my blog. But the first two things that I did that didn't work was definitely a 12-step traditional program. Um, and then just trying to get into this holistic lifestyle. In the beginning, it didn't work because I actually needed professional help. It wasn't enough that I was doing yoga and drinking coffee and saying that, like, you know, like sobriety is just this amazing, great thing. I actually needed a professional to help me with the physical part of my addiction. I wanted to ask you, Elizabeth, about mm -hmm. this because I know AA is inclusive. Anybody can come. It's open to all. And yet I find it fascinating that implicit bias can creep into a 12-step program and the things that made it hard for Katie to get there, you know, public transportation, where it was located despite the fact that they want to be open to all, in some ways can make it unwelcoming for people of color. I find that so interesting. Yeah. You know, my experience is that, um, first of all, it, it, Katie's right. In most 12-step um, uh, AA meetings I've gone to, um, it is mostly white people. Um, I, I, there have been a couple of meetings where there has been only one Black person, one person of color. Depends on how you defend, you know, define person of color. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I learned and heard early on that, you know, you try another meeting. There are some meetings that you go into in certain parts of Manhattan where I live, where, you know, um, it's I don't fit in with that group as as much. Um, there are meetings for every sort of demographic. There are meetings that cater to LGBTQ communities. There are meetings that are women's meetings. There are meetings that are men's meetings. There are meetings that are grittier and meetings that are very, you know, um, high society problems uh, <laughs> dominating, <laughs> to put it kindly. Um, it's basically it's group therapy um, it, where people can get into a room and, you know, bear their souls and um, and hear about other people's struggles and triumphs. And, you know, it is I have found great comfort in it. I will also say I didn't like it at first. But I think that had more to do with I didn't like having to call myself an alcoholic. I didn't like having to deal with the fact that I had a drinking problem. I didn't want someone to take away my crutch. I wanted door number three. Like, you know, where's door number three, please? And I spent a couple of years like banging around looking for door number three before figuring out there wasn't one. 
And, um, and so everybody comes to sobriety and acceptance of your disease of alcoholism. If you want to, you know, accept that it's a disease or whatever you, however you define it, but it's, um, you have to accept that first. You can't be in denial. I was in denial for a long time and I, you know, and to my detriment, because sort of like you, as you were just saying at the beginning, drinking was lovely and great. I've defined my quote unquote career of drinking in three stages, magic, medicine, and misery. And it was magical at first because it worked. And then it was medicinal because I needed it in order to get through. And then it was miserable in the end. And it's amazing how long a person will stay in the miserable stage you know, and refuse to take that enormous step of admitting you need help and, uh, and, and, and seeking that out. It's difficult. I, if I may, I, first of all, I love the three M's. That's like amazing and a perfect way to even describe my drinking um, history. I also want to say at the time that I was trying, I, I t- did attend my first 12 step uh, meetings. And then eventually later on in my sobriety, I started to still attend them for fellowship. However, I knew that mm-hmm. this was not going, I wasn't going to do the steps. I, did, I didn't want to sponsor. I was just there for fellowship at one point in a different meeting with more, um, people of, of color from dif- various different backgrounds yeah. and religious beliefs. But I will say that at the time that I did try uh, my first 12-step uh, meeting, there was this thing of like outside issues. So they might have had like a women's meeting and they might have had this meeting, but they didn't have meetings for, for people of color. And even yeah. in the meetings that it wasn't until George Floyd in 2020, which I think is extremely embarrassing um, because it's so obvious how if you can accept that if women and experiences that we face as women can play a role in our trauma, how can you not think that being black or being of color will play some type of role in the trauma that black people face? But at the time when I, I did my first 12-step meeting, I couldn't talk about anything that involved me being black. And that to me was just a big red flag because who is this? Who is this rule protecting? You know, who is this rule aiming to heal? Clearly not me. The day I actually stopped was very, it was a very normal day. For Emily, even admitting she had a drinking problem took a series of rock bottom moments. Um, You know, I'd had the DUI, I'd had, I'd been in the hospital several times. Um, You know, what really helped um, was after I got a DUI, I had to do classes, you know, court mandated classes. And uh, I had a breathalyzer put in my car, which is just, I mean, there's there's a whole thing that goes along with that. Like giving the third grade teacher a ride on the field trip, like that conversation, you just don't think about having when you're getting behind the wheel, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the, when I, when I had to get the breathalyzer, it really opened my eyes to how much I had been drinking, even though, even though I knew um, it's like, wow, I, w- I, I couldn't drink to, and I couldn't drive the car if I drank. So if I was going out to dinner, it's like, oh, okay. I can't drink here. Oh, I can't drink here. I can't drink here. I'll go to the book club. Oh, I can't drink. Cause I can't drive my car. Um, and then there were times when I would drink and then not be able to start the car in the morning to take my kids to school because there was still alcohol in my system. And it was so confronting that part of it was, um, and then the conversations I had to have with my kids, uh, my, you know, my kids were young, but my oldest two were 10 and 11 once I got the DUI and had the breathalyzer put in. And their questions 
were like, they were so simple. And yet I'd never talked about it. I'd never had to answer those questions. Like, Hey, you know, why, if you have to drink or if you have to drive home, why do they serve alcohol at restaurants? And I'm like, that's a really good question. And <laughs> I've never had to answer that before. And it was really like, Hey, you know, if you've gotten trouble for it, why are you still drinking? And that to me was like, Ooh, I don't know. Like, I don't know. And I was still in that, trying to fit that square peg in that round hole and making this thing work because I just thought it'd be easier to be a person who drinks. And, you know, I woke up on New Year's Day. And again, I just got, we'd gone out to dinner with friends. It wasn't a rager. We just drank till midnight and then went home. And I had blacked out like an entire weekend of my life. And, and blackouts were becoming much more frequent. But this was so confronting because I had blacked out like, you know, things I had done with my kids over the weekend. I, I had just, I'd missed so much of my life. And I heard my husband downstairs with the kids and I'd already been in the hospital. I'd already, you know, been in trouble with the law. Like I was losing everything. And it was just so like, it's like I could hear my life going on without me. And I could hear what, that I was just like eliminating myself from my life. Um, and that was finally the point where I just called the one person I know who, or I knew at the time, um, who was in AA. And I'm like, just tell me what to do. Like, tell me what to do. I like, if I drink again, I just think, I, like, I think this is going to kill me. Um, and I started going to AA and just at that point, it was just unraveling how I had gotten to that point um, and how it had been so hard to stop. Even all of those red flags, those rock bottom things were not enough to make me stop. You know, it was scary. When we come back, how Katie and Emily built recovery spaces that fit their needs and the needs of their communities. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. 
NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. So you saw this huge vacuum clearly, Katie, uh, that wasn't being filled. And you decided to start the Sober Black Girls Club. Honestly, when I think back to 2018, that's when I created SBGC. And it wasn't a collective at that time. I just created it you know, as a blog to hold myself accountable. And when you fast forward to now, um, when the pandemic hit, that's when a flock, a huge flock of women started to send me emails and DMs basically saying that they think they have a drinking problem, but they, they weren't too sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminded me of my time in 2017 when I was studying for the bar, you know, all that stillness that I had by myself, I wasn't, you know, I was in a library locked into the cubicle, studying, studying. It was in those moments of isolation that I really only had two things that I considered my friends, coffee and my caffeine pills and then a bottle, you know, and I can understand that these women who are so used to doing 10,000 things at one time are now in a moment of stillness and they don't know what to do with it now. And what is the easiest thing to do, especially when you haven't really been paying attention to your mental health, you haven't really been paying attention to your hobbies. What is it that you truly like to do? Your life has been about your kids. It has been about going to school. It has been about raising, um, you know, doing, doing two jobs at once. The easiest thing to do is to reach for the bottle. Yeah, we've seen that. We've seen that in the pandemic, especially with women that more than men, they've been impacted by mental health challenges, anxiety and depression and self-medicating that anxiety and depression. Drinking's been off the charts among women in the pandemic, much more so than men. And the isolation you were just talking about, which is, you know, thank God, can you imagine if this pandemic hit before we had Zoom, before we had an ability to connect at least online? I don't know what a lot of these, I don't know how people in recovery would have would have navigated that, but I'm not surprised that you started hearing from so many women because they had nowhere else to turn and dealing with the isolation and the responsibility, which we know falls mainly on the women's shoulders in any family um, when it comes to childcare and that sort of thing. We had kids going to you know Zoom school in the other room or sometimes all in the same room. It was such an enormous challenge for women during this pandemic. And so many of them, we know statistically, have have turned to alcohol as a result. I'm interested though in 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 narrowing the focus to black women because I think women in general, as Elizabeth points out, were really affected by the pandemic and alcohol abuse increased dramatically. But can you talk about what women of color, Black women, who you heard from, some of the specific issues they were dealing with? Because I just found it so interesting, the added pressure you felt, Katie, as a Black woman, even before the pandemic and perhaps exacerbated during the pandemic. I think one of the main problems that affects Black women in, in particularly, is that we think 
that the outlet to our trauma, regardless if it's cultural trauma, racial trauma, um, any type of trauma is either pleasure or, or producing. So there's this stereotype that, no, this is statistic, it's not a stereotype, it's actually true, that black women are the most educated group demographic um, in terms of degrees, higher education degrees or degrees in America. At what cost do folks think that that's true? You know, that is costing us our sleep, our health, our, um, our, our enjoyment, our, our hobbies. It's costing us so much. And we do feel that we have to overcompensate in regards to the negative stereotypes that are plaguing, that are plaguing um, society. Some of the stereotypes that I'm thinking that black people are lazy, that we're crazy. There's all these stereotypes that we don't want to um, adhere to. We don't want to show, even if it means that we deny our own selves, our humanity. I've never, ever, ever seen until I created Civil Blackness Club or even heard of a, of, a, of a woman becoming addicted to anything. I've never seen it. I didn't hear about it. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't happening. It does happen. However, we just keep it a secret because we feel like we're going to be labeled as crazy or lazy, or it's going to be used, it's going to be mentioned or used against us as some type of excuse. And also in regards to men and households, um, I think this is also another statistic that black women generally make more or the breadwinners of the household. At what cost, at what, at what expense do folks actually think we like going out and working nonstop? No, we don't. Um, it's just a lot of pressure in regards to always producing, producing, producing. And when mm-hmm. the pandemic hit and there was hardly, you couldn't really produce much. We couldn't go to the gym. You know, a lot of our jobs were shut down for a period of time. Then what did we turn to? Pleasure. It's usually just production or pleasure. If we're not producing, then we look to pleasure to release ourselves. And what was that? That was alcohol. And I think that that was basically a a generic story that I was constantly hearing. How were other Black women reacting to what you were doing and an ability for them to voice some of these pressures and concerns and forces that were making them more predisposed to abusing alcohol? I think first, um, like something that I do constantly hear is, I don't even know what I like. I don't even know who I am. I don't even know what is it that I, w- I want it to be. You know, I, didn't, I don't know who I am as a person. You know, a lot of the women that I meet through the club know who they are as a mother, as who, who, they, who they are as a wife, who they are as, as a student. But when all that was taken away during the pandemic, they couldn't, they couldn't define themselves for themselves. And that was definitely a common thing that, that created, honestly, the experience, especially our Thursday group. I know folks think that, um, I know there's this misconception that SBGC, all we do is, is, is talk about race. I'm done talking about race. I'm going to be very honest. You know, I stopped doing a lot of interviews and podcasts about race and recovery realm because I'm tired. I want to help women. I want to help myself get back to the basics and literally find out what makes us us as individuals and then use that information in a, in a community collective forward way. Um, that is really the goal of SBGC. I'm so I'm really tired of, of 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 the race talk, and not because it's not necessary or needed, or because it's not true. 
because I don't think it helps black women. I think it helps the, the society as a whole try to understand mm-hmm. race relations. But again, why is that on the back of black women? It just feels like everything when it comes to community, especially the black community, is on for the black woman. You know, even when I created SBGC, I had men telling me that I needed to create one for them. Because the truth is, I think that the black men's plight is is specific plight. Um, however, <laughs> patriarchy has been a, you know, a theme in my trauma. I'm not creating anything for you. You do have to do it yourself. I can help you, but that's not something I'm trying to take on. I'm actually trying to learn how to not take on other people's problems and focus on myself um, as an individual. Because when I focus on myself, I'm focusing and helping my community. And I also think it's important to to, um, note that black people do not have a long history of mental health treatment. Like, you know, for a long time, we were seen as objects. And it's crazy to me that I found out that even in the 1800s, when this nation was going through the Tempest Movement, when this nation had decided that alcohol was was negatively affecting the society, that they purposefully left black people out. Racism is prevalent in every aspect of this nation, including recovery. And it's embarrassing and wrong for anyone to, to think that all recovery is equal. Even when I went to rehab, and I did go to rehab. It was my first time there. And a lot of this, and I was the only black person there. And a lot of them, this was their third, fourth time. And is that judgment? No. Because I think I think most people do need a second time to go to rehab. The first time you don't know what you're that's, doing. Yeah, statistically, and, and, yeah, that's that's true. Most people have to try several times. It's I think there's an average of three or four or five attempts before you get sober. Yeah, and 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 and, and in rehab, you know, constantly hearing about families who had um, uh, similar issues, families of getting treatment and, and and figuring out recovery and being in recovery. That's not applicable to, to black folks. Really, this generation, the millennials, are finally saying enough is enough. We're getting back into nature. We're fixed. We're taking care of our mental health. We're trying to understand our our parents' problems because they didn't take care of their mental health. They had their own issues that involved their race, that involved um, their gender and their sexual orientation, and that looked in totally different. So, th- so our meetings provide us connection. We have to make connection to all these points. It's not enough to say I have a drinking problem and I need to find myself. I need to understand that why after I went to college, I did gymnastics. You know, you told me, you know, you know, I I denounced homosexuality. I, I I dated a man. I went to law school. Why am I still miserable after doing all these things? And why? Because I kept on putting my self worth into tangible items. I kept on putting it, I kept on listening to what people told me to do. And who were these people? Who did my parents want me to listen to? White folks, that's something that we all try to please. We try to not be that, that you know, we, we try, we live our lives trying not to be that one, that black person, right? We wanna be trophies. We want people to know that we're trying so hard and we're trying to, that's pressure. And that does affect and contribute to our self-esteem and how I see myself. I'm happy that I went to law school. I do like luxury things. I do like to have money. However, I want to be okay with just being Katie, even, even with those things. I don't want my worth to be based on those, on those things. So I feel like our meetings are, it's not only about getting to know who we are. 
it's really understanding our history. It's it's knowing that slaves did have were, were you know given alcohol to keep them domiciled. It's knowing that for the Tempest movement, black people were not a part of it. They had to make their own Tempest movement. You know, it's it's knowing what does society and what does racism and sexism and and you know even as a queer person, homophobia that I grew up so homophobic. And I grew up very anti-Black, even myself, perpetuating these these things and not even knowing and understanding it. How do these um, isms play a role in how I see myself and other people? Emily, talk about Sober Mom Squad, which you started during the pandemic. Was this to fill the need that you felt wasn't there when you were Googling, am I an alcoholic? Yeah. I mean, it was a couple of things. So I was working as a, as a recovery coach at the time. Um, and I was working really one-on-one with women who, who had similar stories to me, who, you know, really tried to control it for a really long time and then hit rock bottom. And they were either, uh, they're, you know, coming out of, um, rehab, going to AA, you know, really just to supplement, um, you know, people's other recovery modalities. And once, you know, it was just a couple of weeks in the pandemic and all the kids were home, I started getting messages from moms saying, you know, I never questioned my drinking before. Um, and now I'm drinking a lot more and it's scaring me or my kids are noticing me drink now. Um, and I don't know how, you know, that line of demarcation from coming home from work and having that quiet time in the car, like you don't have any downtime. So women were using alcohol really as, again, as a coping mechanism. And, you know, hey, can, can you help? Can you work with me? And meanwhile, I'm home also working with my five kids with no extra time, wondering what the heck I'm going to do. And so I just honestly put out a call to action on, on social media, you know, and said, is this with other, you know, recovery coaches, counselors, is this what you're seeing? Um, does anyone want to help do something? And, um, you know, a few other women in the recovery space were like, yeah, I'll help, I'll help, I'll help. And we started having just a free meeting every Wednesday. And the only requirements were, you know, if you're a mom and you're questioning your use of alcohol, um, or if you're just a mom who doesn't want to be in the sea of, of women telling you to go pour your quarantini or, you know, the, all these wine messages were, were really strong at this point, you know, it takes a, what it, oh God, what was my favorite one? It takes a, uh, a glass of wine to have a kid and it takes a vineyard to homeschool one or something like all of these messages. <laughs> that, oh and also, God. you know, Elizabeth was mentioning the other day, like what businesses were thriving. It's like, oh, are absolutely. still open. It was the grocery store, the drug store and the liquor store. Yeah. And yeah. Everyone was, that thought was that the was, essential service. That, everyone yeah. was sort of laughing about that, but it's a, yeah. it's True. a big red flag, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and the biggest growth in 2020 in alcohol was single serve drinks because it was easily accessible. And if you're at the pharmacy and you're getting your bleach and your hand sanitizer and all the other things that were sold out and you're at the checkout line, that little can looks really benign. It looks like, it's like, oh, no big deal. It's right here. It's super safe. And meanwhile, it's like two and a half servings of alcohol. And it's just as easy to throw down as a, you know, sparkling water. So even if I'm questioning my use, it's being delivered to me so so easily. Um, so, you know, th- this, these were the messages that I was hearing. Um, and so, yeah, we started meeting every Wednesday and then it just kept growing and growing and growing. 
And women were like, hey, can we do more of these? And um, so I just kind of went with what women were asking for. They wanted to have more meetings. They wanted to have, uh, you know, coaching available. They wanted to have um, a place to connect. And, you know, women's communities are, are nothing new online. I, I have friends who I met in, a, I think it was baby center or something. I was in an online group when my 17-year-old was, when I was pregnant with him um, and we're still friends. And so it really is just a place. It's a community where you can talk about anything from, you know, how, you know, your baby sleeping through the night or a, you know, better Wi-Fi connection with all these kids doing school from home. And it just is, there's no wine mom messaging around it. Nobody's going to tell you to go just pour a glass of wine. Um, so our members really are anybody from women who just don't drink just because they don't, or it's never been a thing for them. They just want to avoid all that messaging. And then the whole other side of the spectrum, women who really are questioning their drinking, sober curious, and women who've been in recovery or are currently um, in, in recovery. Um, so it's just really a community for moms who don't want to be in that sea of wine mom marketing. Sober Mom Squad, I know, is membership-based, right? And it's not unlike Tempest, The Naked Mind, and some yeah. other organizations that have popped up, Emily. You have to pay a fee to be a part of this community. And I'm curious why you decided to go for that model. And are you worried about creating a barrier for for women who may not be able to afford it? Yeah, sure. And this is a, a question that comes up a lot. And, you know, when you have pay for recovery groups, right? And first thing is we started as a free group and we still have a free meeting every Wednesday. We have a free Facebook group. We have a free meeting every single Wednesday. Um, and the reason that, you know, I grew the community was really because women were asking for it. Like we want more of these meetings. We want group coaching. We want to have um, different, you know, we like have EFT tapping and we have writing for recovery. And I also value, you know, what women put into their work. And so for recovery coaches, counselors, um, you know, for my writing expert, like I pay them. Um, and so our membership really goes to pay for the community um, and for the people who are doing work in the community. And because we charge you know, a fee for membership, we do offer scholarships to literally anybody who asks. Um, so it's really come about, and I think, you know, there are so many free things out there. And I think if that works for you, that's awesome. And I, you know, I'm a person who still goes to AA. So like, I see the value in that, but there are people who want other things. And I don't think it's out of the question to, uh, you know, pay people for their work. What would you tell moms listening to this right now, Emily, who are kind of on the precipice of thinking, gee, this is taking too much space in my life, or this is becoming too important, or I just don't want to get to the point where, you know, you were, honestly, or where Elizabeth was, um, or if I am there, what do I do next? Yeah. So the first thing I always say is, you know, it's not your fault for getting addicted to an addictive substance. So to take that whole piece of shame out or, you know, we, we would never question our use of any other addictive substance. We just say, oh, wow, I'm questioning this. I, I'm going to stop 
using this. So that's the first thing I say is it's not your fault for becoming addicted to an addictive substance. And also like your rock bottom is where you stop digging. You do not have to fit any of the checklists. You don't have to match anyone else's story. It doesn't have to get bad before you stop and look at what, what good do you want instead of what are the, the bad things you want to avoid, if that makes sense. You know, cause it's a different, even though you're saying the same thing, it's like, Ugh, I don't want to be hung over every day. Or, you know, I want to wake up clear headed every day. You're saying the same thing, but it's, it's just flipping the script on what do I want? You know, I want to be more present for my kids. I want to remember my date nights. I want to, you know, whatever it is, it's like, what do you actually want? And how much better could your life be if you didn't have this substance that was, that was running the show? And I think we also underestimate how much mental work it takes to, to try and control the substance. Um, I know for me, it was a huge amount of mental freedom. Once I was just like, Oh, I don't have to do that anymore. Like, wow, I, I don't have to try and make all these rules and do all these things to try and make this fit in my life. Like this isn't something I have to do when you recognize that it's a choice and not a requirement as an adult. Um, it's, there's a lot of freedom there. Um, just looking at, you know, how good could your life be if this wasn't running the show? I love what you just said about you're not, it's not your fault. You became addicted to an addictive substance. I, I've, I've never heard that. That's fantastic. Well, and think about cigarettes. You would never say to somebody, are you sure you don't want to just have one or two? Just, just don't smoke the whole pack. Just have, I mean, we never, we don't expect anyone to moderate any other drug. But it's really, uh, again, it's that kind of that double standard of we do expect uh, people to be able to have control over something that's addictive. It, when you think about it, uh, it's just not something I never thought of until, again, I, I was free from it. When we come back, professional help on what you can do if you or someone you love is struggling. A lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before we move on, once again, here's Dr. Dawn Sugarman to explain what alcohol does to the brain and how sobriety can help it recover. So alcohol is what we would call an anxiolytic. People will notice that in the short term, when they take a sip of alcohol, that they feel immediately relaxed. The problem is that in the long term, it increases anxiety. So it becomes this crutch for people that's not a very effective coping tool for anxiety. And in the brain, what happens is that alcohol is a depressant. It suppresses the central nervous system. Um, So it slows down those systems, which is again, why you're feeling more relaxed. But when alcohol starts to leave your body, when you start to go through sort of what's called alcohol withdrawal, then those systems ramp back up. And that's when you get the increased anxiety. I think the other way that it increases anxiety is that you become reliant on that as a way to to cope when you're anxious. And so when you're in situations where you're unable to drink alcohol and you don't have that sort of crutch, then you become more and more anxious. And it becomes more of an anxiety about having a way to deal with your anxiety that's not always effective. But as Dr. Sugarman says, there is some good news. There are studies that show that um, the you know, cognitive impairments related to drinking. If you stop drinking within the the year of abstinence, those do seem to reverse with the exception of if you're really drinking at quite an extreme level where there's sort of permanent damage. But for the most part, stopping drinking will help improve your health and, and can reverse some of those cognitive impairments. Elizabeth and I also spoke with Dr. Louise Stanger, She's a clinical social worker and interventionist with more than 35 years of experience in the world of substance abuse and addiction. She told us how to approach people who may have a problem. What are the questions you ask people, Louise, to determine if they've gone from having a healthy relationship with alcohol or casual, I don't even know how to describe it, to something that is really dangerous, damaging, and incapacitating? So um, when I'm doing a family map, or I would ask you, um, Katie, um, first of all, you take a look and you say, what's more important, the event or the substance? So right now you and I are drinking coffee, um, but let's say we go out to dinner, right? If that glass of wine is more important to you, 
than the event, I'm going to know that because it's not going to be just one glass of wine that's going to be two glasses. You ask people, have there been any unintended consequences? Um, with, you know, college students, you could say, hey, did you ever wake up in someone else's bed, for example? Have you ever missed a class? Have you ever lied or cheated on anybody? Have you ever missed a class? Have you ever asked anyone to bail you out? It's taking a look at what, have you ever had a DUI? Have you ever been yet reprimanded by your boss? Have you ever fallen asleep with your baby in your arms? There's all kinds of um, unintended con consequences. Do you talk to your partner if you have a partner? You know, what's your relationship um, with everybody? So you try and take a look and you ask people, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how's this working for you? And then how do you convince them to take the, the you know, because a lot of people, first of all, there are a lot of people who have consequences like that after one bad night. Like I have lots of, you know, when, when I, when I started telling my girlfriends that I had a problem with alcohol, they were like, no, you don't. So-and-so does, you know, she's had all the consequences that we've seen you. We've never seen you do any of those things. And that's true. I didn't. So, and for a large, and I was able to stop drinking when I got pregnant and, so I, that gave me deniability. I was like, I don't have a problem. I can control it. I have controlled it. And I haven't had all those dramatic negative consequences, at least not yet. And so how do you convince somebody to take the step to get help when denial can be so strong? And you can point to so many other people and say, well, she's much worse than I am. So first of all, I my word of recommendation is you never go one-on-one -on -one with anybody who you believe is active in addiction. That is one of the most foolhardiest things in the world. So I'm really known for an invitational strategy um, or intervention. And an intervention is merely an invitation to change. But if you really want, if you're really worried about someone, you want to do a lot of back work and do due diligence. And you want to be able to interview their friends, their family, because individually. Mm -hmm. Because if I, and I don't, if I, for example, wanted to learn about you, I might talk to your producer. I might talk to your husband. I might talk to your best friend. I might talk to your mother, but somebody usually calls me and not you because you're the identified loved one. If we use you, whose heart is hurting. They beg, they pleaded, they nag, they, they, they don't know what to do because they see with their eyes that someone is drowning. So how often how often does that person say, OK, I'll get help? Like what's the what's the that? Well, I'm for me, I've been very fortunate. I'm a 97 percent success wow. rate, but I don't show up and just say, hi, guess what? It takes a lot of work. So when we're working with the family, I do I do do the family map. It takes me 20 to 30 hours of back work before before I would ever stage or invite you to change. The way I see an intervention, it's collective in the respect that it takes a village to move someone. Recovery in and of itself is connection. It takes a village. It is an intervention in that we intend to invite or seek someone or motivate them to change. And we create a positive crisis in which there's an opportunity for you to understand that this is coming from a place of love. This is coming from a place of hope and that there is a solution and people will walk with you. Um, 
the strategy is you've got to be very flexible, but you don't just walk into someone and you say, oh, hi, you've been drinking, you need to go, or you don't do it in a dismissive way, but you try and learn everything you can about that person and then help other people speak from their heart. So when I talk about intervention, I'm talking about heart, hurt, and hope. What have you experienced in the last couple months that or years have made your heart hurt? And what is your hope? And you can't do an intervention without having a solution in place. <laughs> Whether it's um, with alcohol, I'm going to be clear, because it's both physiologically and psychologically addictive, you need residential medical detox. You just can't just go cold turkey on your own. You stand too much of a risk for a seizure, for some other problems. So it would be foolhardy to say, just stop. Yeah, um, you can die. You can die from alcohol. I have a friend whose son Amy Winehouse died. I had yeah. a friend whose son died. Yeah. yeah. So you, you have to really understand what you're doing. People don't realize how dangerous that is. I mean, coming I off of heroin, being dope sick, You'll feel like you want to die, but you won't actually die. People die from alcohol withdrawal. Absolutely. And also you have to, with the family that you're working with, give them three great treatment um, solutions. I'm not related to any behavioral health care center in the world. I've had the good fortune of training or teaching at many of them and working with many of them just based on, you know, my reputation or my my ability to to do good work. Well, you know, just to wrap things up, I hope that that all these people and we're talking about women more specifically, but anyone who has a substance abuse issue that's developed during the pandemic will get help um, because the numbers are frightening. They are. They're they're absolutely astronomical. We are a country in crisis and our mental health, our anxiety um, is at an all time high. We have um, we're being fueled by the alcohol industry, the marijuana industry, the um, pill industry. Um, And what we need to do is help rewrite the fabric. But for women, especially because this is dedicated to women, I want them to know there's always hope. There's always a solution that you're not alone, that you're not crazy, that you feel it's awful to be inside in Zoom land. It's not awful to be scared that your child is not thriving, um, that there are there is help available. Help is available. If you or anyone you know is struggling with alcohol use, you can start by calling the National Drug and Alcohol Treatment Hotline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. And you know what? You can also check out the groups we discussed, like the Sober Black Girls Club, the Sober Mom Squad, and Alcoholics Anonymous, of course. We'll have links and more information and the description of this podcast. A big thank you, by the way, to my co-host, Elizabeth Vargas, who I've known for many, many years. And I so admire how she has not only dealt with her issues, but shared her story to help other people. Go check out her memoir. It's called Between Breaths. And also she's got a great podcast where she talks to lots of different people in the alcohol and addiction space. 
That podcast is called Heart of the Matter. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.